Conservation Queens podcast. We are five girls who love the earth and have a passion for living a more eco-friendly life. We're real life zoo employees and nothing that we say reflects our organizations and all of our thoughts and opinions are our own. Yay! Welcome back everyone. Hello. If you're here again, wow. Thanks. (laughs) I was gonna say. Rock star. (laughs) What a great time. But seriously, thank you guys so much. For all the love and support you've given us in our first episode, on our social media pages, we we were absolutely overwhelmed and can't thank you all enough for listening to our first podcast and hopefully enjoying it and for continuing to listen, which probably brings us to who won the great animal debate. And as far as votes go, beluga whales did win. Congratulations, Emily. Belugas are pretty cool. Everyone did great. Even though we realized that we all chose a big, sexy megafauna. <laughs> I wouldn't. I don't um, know if I would call prancer-tailed porcupines big, sexy megafauna. Okay, like... <laughs> or bats. We all chose mammals. Bats are still mammals. Listen, I mean, mammals. The biggest and the sexiest. But, I think like, I'd take the differ, sir. <laughs> you're right you did talk about that giant bat that was like you know very big i, I, I still think we should have the great bird debate i wouldn't be too mad the great bird debate would just be me debating why peacocks are not the best <laughs> oh we could do what's the worst bird because that i have a lot of Ooh, worst bird that would be a good one at. They were like free roamers around the zoo and they, oh my God. One, I would be trying to do something and there would be a male just like, hey, 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 look at me. One, one day I'll talk <laughs> about, I'll tell you about guinea fowl, but today's not that day. But I hate Oh, them. they are the dumbest birds to oh, ever. <laughs> Thank God. Disclaimer, we do enjoy some birds. <laughs> Birds are secretly spies. Remind- I, I say I birds aren't real. Well, yeah, get out of here. Birds for the <laughs> Everyone knows this, but that reminds me of a shout out. They think Abby wants yes! to give to someone who really. <laughs> so our our friend Ben um, sent us a picture, and if you follow us on Facebook or Instagram, you might have seen it. They photoshopped a tomato face on the Uncle Sam poster. <laughs> Which is exactly what I asked for in the last podcast. Thank you so and much, I'm, Ben. And I'm so thankful, Ben. He sent it to me. Um, he lives on the opposite side of the country. So he sent it to me, and I woke up in the morning, and that was the first thing I saw, and it made my entire day. <laughs> Let me guess, he made it ben at like 3 a.m. wizard when it comes He probably to did make it at 3 a.m. I have no idea, because I just, I woke up at my nice and early... 10 a.m. and was like, oh. <laughs> so, anyone else have any uh, life updates, conservation updates they'd like to share before we get into what we're going to talk about this week? My dog is snoring. That's really cute. Oh. <laughs> what a, thank you. Thanks for, for the update. conservation update, Emily. On <laughs> she's, conser- <laughs> she's conserving her energy. <laughs> <laughs> This is gonna be a weird episode. All right, let's. Have you guys talk ever seen about Sorry. zoos? Okay. Y'all. <laughs> yes. Okay. Let's jump into this. Um, so today's episode, we're gonna be talking about good zoos and bad zoos, um, and kind of what you know the difference is, how to tell the difference. Um, we kind of give you guys a zoos. lot of information, um, and then we realized this is kind of a sensitive topic, um, and so we're gonna just. Dis- be discussing some different controversial topics. Um, this is actually the first in a two-part series uh, that we're going to be doing called Let's Talk About Zoos. So today's Let's Talk About Zoos is focused on what zoos are, kind of the history of zoos, and the accreditation process that zoos can go through. Um, so that's what today's episode is going to be focusing on. And then probably next week ep- next week's episode will be um, more zoo-related topics. But today... We decided to split it in half because there's just a whole lot of information out there. It's um, dense, yo. It's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. So because that, yeah, it's like 
what is what is this oh my goodness i'm so glad you asked (laughs) it's it's just a large umbrella and it's like how do you break that down well if you ask google (laughs) google's gonna tell you that a zoo is quote an establishment which maintains a collection of wild animals typically in a park or gardens for study conservation or for display to the general public okay broad (laughs) (laughs) it's a farm um yeah well so that's the thing is zoos are not the only places that house animals you got aquariums sanctuaries research facilities rehab centers science centers nature centers safari parks there is a property that i've driven by multiple times here in florida that is just a fenced in field that has a zebra and emu and like a bunch of other animals in just there. reveal our location and they're just like come see our animals so it's literally someone's backyard where they just own all these exotic animals and they're like yeah give me five dollars and you can come stare at my emu <laughs> that sounds so I you know, know what's the difference between someone that has these animals in their backyard and a place that calls itself a zoo um, there are really no requirements to call yourself a zoo, but there are definitely a lot of differences in the, all the places that I mentioned before, whether it's sanctuaries, research facilities, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'd say the main difference that sets these facilities apart are the purpose of the facility. So why do they have these animals? What are they doing with them? Um, how are they presenting to them to the public? Um, and also accreditation, I think, goes along with that. So I guess a quick example would be, you know, a rehabilitation center is going to focus. The purpose is of having those animals is rescue and rehab. And while maybe at a science center, a lot of them house animals for educational purposes to display for the public and research so depending on the place different purpose of housing those animals or you could be that guy here in florida that's just like i can have a zebra so here it is um very yeah i think (laughs) not not the same i think that's like a really good point that you bring up because there are some facilities that call themselves a zoo um and they have their collection of animals, and they like to use breeding animals in human care as a conservation um, effort, which if you're just breeding your animals in your facility, like that's been proven not to help conservation at all. Um, it only really matters unless you're doing like reintroduction programs or, um, you know, like educating the public or making sure you have like a good genetic background of your animals in human care yeah. to Possibly it's okay, Emily. Season. You can say Tiger King. I mean, we'll talk not, about that for sure. You're not the only one. <laughs> so I, I mean, there's there's one really really easy, I think, good easy first way to figure out if your zoo is a good zoo or a bad zoo. And if you go to their website, and you go to like conservation efforts, if they don't mention specific projects or conservation efforts that they are contributing to, if they just say by breeding our animals or by doing this. And they're not specific. Or if you go to that zoo and you ask them, hey, what do you do to contribute to conservation? And they're like, oh, well, we don't really like to name names about our exhibits, like about who we are contributing to. That's a red flag. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because like every there's, zoo that I've been to is like, flags. well, there's a that's lot of true. red flags. But that's that's one that I think is a good is a good base. If you can go to a mm-hmm. facility and be like, hey, what kind of things do you do to help support conservation? And they say, oh, here are like our rescue programs. Here are 30 different projects we support. They will name names because they want people to donate to those projects. Right. So that's like specific, like, oh, we donate to like the giraffe conservation. Yes. Like, you know, something specific. Exactly. You're so so right. specificity is a big, a big deal. Yeah. So not very many people know about where zoos actually came from or if they do know where they came from they don't really know the difference between zoos then and zoos now so i'm going to tell you about the history of zoos and spoiler alert this is my favorite subject to talk about ever so it's pretty (laughs) buckle up kids buckle up i'm (laughs) so so excited i love talking about this and if you guys do have any questions about history of zoos or aquariums after this i'm going to do Believe it or not, this is a brief overview. <laughs> um, it's not going to sound brief, but it is. Feel free to um, email us at conservationqueenspodcast at gmail.com, and I would love to answer 
questions about the histories of zoos and aquariums. So I would love to redirect your questions to Abby. So again, but I'm excited. <laughs> so right now, um, again, this is not going to be a complete history because that would take way too long. I'd have to have my own podcast for that. And it's not as fun as talking with you ladies. So I don't want to do that. Um, yeah. And we're, I'm also going to focus on the history of like accredited zoos and aquariums more than like circuses and backyard um like this guy in like florida. the guy in florida or like <laughs> keep referring to or like we'll just call him florida <laughs> florida man florida very man. inconspicuous florida exactly oh my gosh um so not like florida man or joe exotic not that kind of zoos but like the zoos that when i know i, I almost threw up in my mouth too it's fine Sorry. Reflex. but the zoos that when you think about zoo the one that you'd be like oh like my local zoo whether it's st louis zoo minnesota zoo whatever it is that's kind of what i'm thinking about here uh the first zoos and aquariums um that were ever cited in history were called menageries um these date back to over five thousand years ago which i think is is crazy because humankind's only been around for like ten thousand years right and half that time we've Uh, had animals um in human care I don't know if caring is the right word. We'll get to that. But <laughs> we've had ha- humans have had animals in captivity. Quotation marks. Um, yeah, so go. the first um, kind of occurrences that we saw of animals, like the, the evidence that we had of animals being in human care, um, were these carvings that were from Mesopotamia and then hieroglyphs from ancient Egypt. And they showed um, humans with like exotic animals in different like garden settings. And that's kind of what a menagerie is. Uh, skeletons were found from baboons, hippos, antelopes, elephants, leopards, crocodiles, wild cows, tons of animals. Um, I read a couple of different articles about that, um, some from National Geographic, some from other, um, like, the scientific journals. Um, and they've been found in, like, tombs in Egypt because it, Egyptians believed in, like, embalming and the mummification. So they found evidence of people that had those animals dating back to 4000 BCE. So... it's it's, it's a long time ago ago. um so menageries were private collections that were owned by kings queens pharaohs leaders basically people of power um there's also um a couple articles that cite an ancient city called we're going to see if i can pronounce this hierakonopolis maybe i think that's correct yeah ellie says ellie Ellie, that's not ellie that is who's proper (laughs) (laughs) agrees um so hierakonopolis in egypt apparently housed a lot of different kinds of exotic animals for people to come and see um and that was before egypt was under the rule of pharaohs so they've i think she's actually trying to correct your pronunciation (laughs) it's like no no this is oh my gosh you guys this is how you say it good lord no i love it it's okay um but so basically, these animals in human care have been cited back thousands of years. They probably were um, in human care before 4000 BCE, and we just haven't found evidence of it, which is bananas. Um, so, as you guys can probably guess, these animals are not treated very well. Um, so, all the mummified animals I mentioned earlier, a lot of them showed evidence of having. Um, broken bones that were partially rehealed, which leads to like signs of a, that means like a sign of abuse. Um, they had evidence of being tied up. They had evidence of them being sacrifices to um, gods or whatever Woo! they were sacrificing to, or whatever. Or, or whatever. Mostly gods, maybe just because they were like, we're going to sacrifice this animal. I don't know. Um, but they basically the animals yeah. were not treated very well. Um, another kind yeah. of sad thing is that there were not only animals in these zoos but people from different parts of the world yeah human zoos are so messed up and they they um they are like more they are not as far back as oh yeah human zoos were a thing up to a pretty recent time which is and it dated back to these menageries um where they would have people as exhibits in the menagerie Um, yeah, which is yikes. big. Yikes. We do not condone that. No. <laughs> no. Um, but there were people that were in these measures as well. 
Um, and the purpose of the menagerie, which I think is a big, a big thing to take in consideration, is that it was to express man's control over beasts slash nature. So these kings and these pharaohs were trying to show how powerful they were. Um, that kind of, you know, it kind of incited fear in their subjects, right? So, like, if a, a king was to say, look at me, I'm controlling this lion, um, many people feared lions and big cats and things. So then they could think, hey, I can control you too, right? So it's kind of a power um, power trip there. Um, so menageries lasted well into the 18th century. <laughs> um, it can be argued that they exist today um but they probably won't call themselves a menagerie a lot of places that now call themselves menageries um there's one in uh, i believe france called the menagerie du jardin de i can't remember what the other word is but it calls itself a menagerie but it's actually a really good zoo but because it it's so old they kept the same name because it's a history thing right i felt like i mean that whole idea that you just mentioned of I have these animals to show how powerful I am is definitely still a thing. That yeah. It, today. it absolutely and... is. Um, that can be where Tiger King come into play as you could argue. It is like an, <laughs> I was going to say cop cop Tiger King. It was like, you know, I think the people get how much I <laughs> yeah. hate it. All, I, so. if, if, I, we all hate it. And unfortunately, apparently people said they hated it and then they went to go visit his zoo anyway. So no, that's yeah. the people you don't support. Uh, Correct. They're not the only zoo that exists in the world that's like that. And yeah, no. Well, yeah, well, yeah it's it's very true. true. Which is why we're talking I think about this. Like, well, well off accrediting body facilities, but. <laughs> well, luckily. Well, we'll get that's, into yeah, that. we'll get into that. Um, I think that's the next episode we talk more about controversies. Um. But speaking of those old zoos, um, in the late 18th century, zoos, um, as we knew them, so, like, some people call these, quote-unquote, modern zoos. Um, I like to call them old zoos, because they're, I think they're different than modern zoos, and I'll explain why. Um, but they started appearing in the late 18th century. The- Is this when, you like, the word zoo started to be used uh, in the late 18th century? Like, when did that word... I guess start not that I don't like you don't have to have an answer for me I'm just I'm googling about it it now when did the word zoo start the The word zoo was first used in the late 19th century as a popular abbreviation for zoological gardens in London I love the internet so um the zoological gardens in London was the first place to call themselves that I guess because zoology has existed I guess for a while now right it like kind of came more of a science yes or at least a terminology um but the london zoo is not the oldest zoo in the world the oldest zoo in the world is the tiergarten schoenbrunn in vienna austria again if i pronounce that beautiful pronunciation i took spanish not (laughs) so i don't know um it was opened in 1752 but it was then considered an imperial menagerie so even in 1752 they still had menageries um and this one was owned by whoever was um, in charge of Austria at the time. But then in 1779, it opened to the public. And that's where it kind of shifted from being a menagerie to being kind of an older zoo, an older style zoo. Right. Um, so that's kind of when the, the change happened. Um, and that zoo is still operating today. It has been open 268 years. Wow. Wow. Isn't that bananas? Is that older than the United States? Oh, it's younger by like two years. (laughs) It's it's yeah. So imagine that. Well, it opened to the public in 1779, but it was opened in 1917. Sorry, okay, older than my entire country. Correct. Um, and the cool part is they still have some of the original um buildings standing. They have like the imperial um pavilion, and they have like luncheons and stuff in there. And that's what, like, originally opened, and it was for people to, like, eat amongst the exotic animals that were, um, at least then contained. It wasn't quite, like, come up to my table and eat my scraps, but it was still, like, you're still in the middle of it. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, let know, me just give like... my extras to this otter over here. <laughs> right, it's not quite like that. Um, <laughs> 
but like but that's that structure is still there so if you ever get the chance to visit um austria which if i ever do i'm dragging uh my Again, husband there bucket list yeah it's kind of cool right like this is like the oldest bucket zoo list ever. going to that zoo and then also reenacting the entirety of the <laughs> but that, that's a side <laughs> oh can hopes and dreams i do i love them i do have a quick question yes um as so i think like the importance of this zoo or like is that it open to the public because a lot of the menagerie menageries you mentioned previously they weren't really public no, right so the only like it was more like rich people inviting their rich yeah. friends and being, yeah like, look at it's pretty much like a fancy house party um the only one that i could see that was different was the hiracanopolis that city that was a that was for oh, public okay, yeah um, but gotcha. other than that, all of cool. all of it was like in the palace and things. So if you were just a lowly commoner right. or a servant or whatever, you didn't really get to no go animals see the for you. I heard, they, I heard they had an elephant in there. Yeah, yeah maybe. Yeah, <laughs> who knows? Um, so that zoo's been open for a long time. Um, the sh- the purpose of these zoos shifted, right? So before it was like I have power. Look at this. So then now with these newer zoos um, opening up, um, the the purpose shifted from asserting power to entertainment of the public so now it was Mm -hmm. look at all these crazy animals we have in our world which the idea is kind of cool right like that's why we have zoos today too is like everybody look at how amazing the natural world is like we have these amazing animals um however um it was not executed the The conditions conditions were different which we'll talk about in a second we're very not great correct um, so scientists also then used the opportunity to start to study these animals more closely because it was difficult to find and study them in the wild. Um, today, even, uh, I know that when we were in, when I was in Zambia, um, we were told, because we were there for a month, um, we all did our own research projects, and we were told don't do them on, like, lions or leopards because it was unlikely that we were going to see enough to get good research on them. Um, and that's why zoos are important today. It's part of the reason is because now we have these animals we can we can do behavioral studies on animals um non-invasively and it's just it's great um but this but these older zoos are the first time scientists could really kind of start digging in so you'll see kind of a boom in like first scientific papers because of uh, about animals because of this Mm -hmm. kind of thing because they were able to go in and be like wow like (laughs) these lions have really big teeth and these tigers have really big teeth, and they're very similar in, like, dentition. And they could look at them <laughs> crazy. Which, again, to us is, like, that's normal. But maybe to them it was, like, this this really amazing thing. So then you have, like, all the – a lot of it um, – the scientific studies that we know today stem from these, these first zoos. Um, so the National Zoo, which is one of the first zoos in the United States, um, brought in bison – um it looks like Emily, yeah did you yeah, mentioned so that found, yeah, can you tell us about um, that a little information about that um and essentially it was the national zoo in washington dc um there was an individual there of the name of william temple hornaday um and he was actually a taxidermist so that's what made it kind of interesting for him to pioneer these efforts with bison um but he actually helped lead the zoo in conservation efforts to save the buffalo the american buffalo which is pretty cool so it's kind of like an early example of conservation efforts in zoos and we thank theodore Roosevelt for that a ton too because i'm sure he had a lot to do with the conservation actions that we have today um but speaking of these animals that were in these zoos you might wonder where did they come from well, uh, they came from the wild. <laughs> if you guys have ever seen the movie, the Disney movie Tarzan, um, the villain in there, Clayton, is actually like, his purpose of going to Africa is to get a bunch of gorillas out of the wild and then sell them. And the purpose of selling them was either to circuses or to zoos for people to then look at them. Um, and a lot of the gorillas that we have now today in human care are actually descendants of those gorillas that were brought over um, in the early um, days of zoos. So um, a lot of people... I don't, I don't know how to feel about it's, it. It's kind of a weird feeling because you, we all know that instinctively these animals had to come from somewhere. 
what a lot of people don't realize right. is that we don't modern zoos don't just take animals out of the wild good modern zoos don't just take animals out of the wild right these are animals that have been in breeding programs which we will discuss um, a little bit later but back then they had to get the animals somewhere and they got them from the wild and the purpose was solely like i'm going to show these animals off we're gonna show fun things that they can do and seems like a lot of money was oh absolutely these are these are like for-profit um endeavors for zoos which is unfortunate but like that's why the history this is why the history is important to know history so i always argue that when people are like well i don't like zoos because this isn't this and it's like well that's why it's important to know the history of zoos and aquariums because then you can see where you came from and that helps us move forward into the future um so Mm -hmm. speaking of the exhibits that these animals were kept in uh it was a lot of concrete floors bars for walls and they had enough room for animals to stand up turn around and lie down um those are like the very very first zoos and then as time went on the exhibits started getting bigger uh one of my home zoos back home in minnesota is the como park zoo and conservatory in saint paul and they um opened in the 1800s and then in the 1930s when the great depression hit they actually started building a bunch of new exhibits for the animals as part of the like workers comp program and so we still use some of those same um some of the same exhibits are used but have been changed to then fit aza standards and the original cages are still there but they are not used to house animals it's now the education building but they kept but they kept the the cages and the bars there and they have signs that they say like this is our history so that's really where i started like my love for this started is at that zoo because it showed the transition from these old tiny little cages for bars like my office that I worked in was in the old lion exhibit and that was crazy to me but I liked that it showed where we came from and then where we are now it's really cool so if anybody has a chance to go to Minnesota and visit the Como Zoo fun fact free entry no entry fee my dream wow um (laughs) I will give you such a good tour um but definitely go check it out because it's good to see where we came from. And that zoo relies a lot on the history um, to show visitors how cool zoos are. I don't remember what zoo specifically it is. It was on the television show, The Zoo, which if you have never seen it, watch it. please watch it. It's one of the greatest shows ever created. But I one episode, they were at a zoo and they... Um, it used to be the ha- like the housing area they were in used to be the large cat like holding area and they turned it into the bird like exhibit area. I love that. So like you see those exhibits and they're obviously not that large. They're not large enclosures, but they said like you know, it, it was obviously not suitable for large cats, but it is very much suitable for small birds. So they revamped it and made it into like the birdhouse. And that's cool because that's recycling. But they like, <laughs> right. Bend and recycle. But they make it very apparent when you go in there, like they explain the whole history of this used to be the large cat holding again, like when the zoo first opened. And obviously when learning more about these animals, their natural behaviors, their needs, their care, these things changed a lot. Um, but it, I, I just thought that was really neat when I was watching that episode, how they explained yeah, it. Yeah, that's so cool. I need to find out what zoo that was because it's going to bother <laughs> me. <laughs> we can talk about that next week, too. Um, so the animals in these older zoos were likely um, abused a lot because they were, like, putting on shows. Um, nowadays, we usually call them training demonstrations because the behaviors that you see, like, from SeaWorld um, with, like, the, like, Uh, dolphin and orca shows or um, like sea lion shows those are all behaviors that we would be doing anyway with the animals behind the scenes we're just showing the general public and putting it to fun music um but but back then (laughs) that might that was not so much the case and a lot of it had to do with we did not understand these animals quite yet i think that's important to know is that i don't think that people were intentionally like abusing these animals because they wanted to i think a lot of it was misunderstanding um and as they learned more things started to change and that's actually what sprung up modern zoos 
So in the 1960s and 70s, um, the public that was visiting all of these different institutions began to protest mistreatment of animals in zoos and aquariums, especially in the United States. Which is, which which is, is fair. Um, so then in 19... Super, <laughs> super fair. Um, at this point, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, the AZA, which you're going to hear a lot about, um, had been created, but it hadn't quite regulated things yet. It was more of just like an organization to belong to. Um, and then in 1970, the United States Department of Agriculture, or USDA, passed the Animal Welfare Act, um, initially that applied to lab animals only, uh, and later applied to any animals that were for exhibition, research, or the pet trade. So this is where we have our baseline of what is okay to own an exotic animal. Right. Pretty much everywhere, or not everywhere, the majority of facilities that house animals are USDA. Regulated. And they actually have to be, because if they're not, then that animal is legal, um, which is that's, not yeah, unheard well, of, and- but that's important to know that this is just the base for it. Very super baseline. baseline. I'm sure Kenzie will talk about that. Right. uh, In a minute, but just so you know, it started in 1970. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, In 1971, the AZA established its first accreditation committees. This is when we first started getting standards for zoos for animals. And this is in direct um, response to the public being upset. So that's kind of a cool thing is that, like, the public opinion mattered a lot. Uh, I mean, again, it, fair. Yeah, I agree. So the Accreditation Committee's goal was to raise the standards for animal welfare in zoos and aquariums, and they definitely did. Again, this is where modern zoos come in. So zoos begin to turn uh, these tiny little cages into habitats. Um, the display areas became much more natural, right? So if you look at big cats 1.0 tiny little concrete thing to big cats 2.0 giant savanna heated rocks like Ugh. climbing areas gorgeous it, it looks Beautiful. like you're in the middle of africa it's it's really something that um happened be- again public public opinion mattered so Fun fact about Abby, she also has an obsession with enclosure design for animals. No, I'm going to... I was going to say, here we go, here we go. I would love to to, to talk about is the uh, exhibit design. That's where I got the idea for, like, doing this history thing. And then I got really into the history and then fell downhill (laughs) from there. Um, If I ever got to consult to, like, help design a new exhibit, I think that would be, like, the highlight of my life. It'd be so cool. Is there a, a grad school option for that? I guess it would just you be a double get, major in so, biology and engineering, yeah. Right, and like zoology. and You can get a certification okay. in architecture as well, and I have considered doing that. Anyone have a time machine? I'm, I haven't gotten to grad school yet. Oh. I got time. Yeah, I have one in my, I have one in my garage. You've got to oh, drive a uh, Thank you. <laughs> oh, my God. So when these exhibits became more natural, they also started adding things called enrichment um, and other kind of sensory simulation. So animals had care regimens that were species specific and they had the best, the animals best just had mine. So that focus that we talked about earlier shifted from entertainment and scientists getting a good look at these exotic animals to how can we give these animals the best life we possibly can while they're in human care knowing we probably can't put them back into the wild because of years and years of being in human care. And that was another thing that happened is breeding programs started and became standard. And so animals stopped being taken from the wild for the most part. I'm not going to say that animals aren't taken from the wild today for exhibition and exploitation. Um, Unfortunately, it does still happen. But most zoos that are AZA accredited or have other kind of accreditations are going to have a breeding program in place. And that is where those animals came from. It is not because they went out to Africa and captured a pride of lions, because we know now that's not a good idea. And there are also a lot of laws in place preventing that. Absolutely. And have been in place for many, many, many years. Yes. And the USDA was a big part of that. Right. I think um, Emily mentioned it last episode, but like the MMPA, 
is a great example. Marine Mammal Protection Act of 1972. Yes. It's been illegal to collect any marine mammal from the wild since 1972 unless you have special permission um, from the government. And a lot of the marine mammals that are from the wild are rescues. Um, You need special permission. You can't even go and you're like, you know, this manatee is in a lot of trouble. You know, it was hit by a boat shark or something. They still need, well, yeah, but even yeah. they, like, when the SeaWorld rescue team goes out, or any other rescue goes out, they still need to get explicit permission from Fish and Wildlife Services before they can even, like, get, you know, hands-on with that animal and actually rescue And it them. helps a lot. There's a lot of regulation that goes into that, that I guess, I didn't always know about that, and when I learned about that, I was like, well, yeah, it's awesome. it makes sense, and it's it's important, and important that people understand that side of things. absolutely so the purpose of good zoos today in aquarium uh, zoos and aquariums because in addition to just having good animal welfare conservation of species became more important so those conservation efforts that we talk about became super important and also the education to the public which we'll hear more about in a second but i know all of us um, as zoo educators know that our jobs are important and they are essential to running Thanks, the zoo. Sandy. Listeners, you might be wondering now, yeah. what is in the future for zoos and aquariums? And I get asked this question. I have to. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so I've talked to a lot of people about this because I'm like, what do you think is going to happen in like a hundred years with zoos? And I've gotten a lot of different answers. Um, and it's very interesting to me. So one answer is that because we're becoming a more technological world, zoos will become virtual. And not just virtual as in, like, hey, you can do it on your computer, but, like, you go to a place and they have, like, a holograph elephant a that you can like go that up to and interact it, with. But it's a hologram. I think there is. So these are, like, this is not super, like, I was, like, 100 years from now, and it's, like, really could be just, like, 10 years from now, which is crazy. Uh, so there are places that are starting, and right now we don't call them zoos, but in the future, that might be what they're called. That might be what the future of zoos are going. Um, the other side of this is frozen zoos, which I think we'll talk about the controversy next episode. Um, but with animals like the northern white rhino, which are extinct, um, they could then be brought back, possibly. So we have some like cool... Extinct animals, hopefully it won't become a Jurassic Park situation, because that <laughs> is terrifying to me. Wait, I think okay, that's a bad idea. Quickly, all the movies a, talk about how it's a bad idea. The point that, like, if the uh, dinosaurs in Jurassic Park had proper enclosures and enrichment and training, <laughs> like, it would not have gone the way it went. <laughs> and in Jurassic World, the You're not training wrong, that Chris but Pratt also, does is like... not proper training. It is abysmal, the clicker training that oh is exhibited. Oh my gosh. That... <laughs> Let's click the thing That's 30 times to get their works. attention. That's how this works. Yeah, that was Oh awful. boy. Um, but anyway, so the other, I think, thing to think about, this is kind of, this is kind of bleak, but our environment is dying. Our world is dying. Um, the wild, unfortunately, is not really a safe, sacred place anymore. Uh, there is likely not many parts of this world that are untouched by humans. It's likely that we've been almost everywhere except for the bleakest of places. Um, and we are seeing animals disappear. We are thought to be in the middle of a fifth extinction, um, which is terrifying to me. And that also says to me that we need zoos more than we ever did before. And whether it's for funding conservation projects um, or it's to share care stories about these animals so people start, start donating more money or being more eco-friendly or eco-conscious, it'll help preserve these species. So the future of zoos is hopefully um, one day we won't need zoos anymore. And that's ultimately the goal of a zoo. And that sounds crazy. Uh, is that we all work so we don't need zoos anymore. But that is the ultimate goal, is that people will care so much about these animals and be so conscious about the environment that we won't need to have the zoos there anymore. So that was really cool, Abby. I definitely learned a lot more about the history of zoos. I didn't know that they've been around for so long. That's kind of mind-blowing. 
yeah right it's until crazy, like two yeah. years ago and I was yeah. like, what can what? we say humans will be humans right but anyways uh <laughs> as we mentioned though <laughs> zoos have definitely changed a lot since their first inception and they have a couple accrediting bodies as we've mentioned time and time and time again we do work with aza affiliated facilities so what is aza so AZA stands for the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, and they are one of the accrediting bodies that you can find here. Uh, they are considered to be kind of the top tier when it comes to accreditation, but they're not the only ones. There are also ZAA, or the Zoological Association of America. There is the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries, GFAS. WAZA, which is World... <laughs> which is world association of zoos and aquariums and then of course we have the good old usda so we're gonna hey Hey. so we're gonna just jump on in a little bit and talk a little bit more about what those are i'm gonna do my best to keep it in layman's terms because i'm telling you i was researching them trying to go through a lot of their standards and their accreditation process and it's a lot of legal jargon and technicality, yeah. and I, my head hurt. <laughs> so, uh, Association of Zoos and Aquariums are referred to as the national standard for accreditation. Uh, accreditation is mandatory for institutions who want to keep with this organization, and reviews are lengthy and in depth. And less than ten percent of current facilities are actually accredited by this body. So, there are about two hundred and forty accredited zoos and aquariums in thirteen countries, with majority of them being right here in the good old. S of A, but there's over 2,000 facilities in the U.S. that are allowed to house animals. So, kind of put that. That's like USDA. So that yes. means they're, U- yes. they're USDA regulated, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and then but there's more them. that are not allowed to house animals. But Florida man, like Florida, Florida man. man. That's, that's not. I don't think it's not against the law, though. I think I we're going to so. go into I an episode. Well, okay, so this, Hold on. this goes into like having wild exotic animals. Pets. Pets. Yeah, it's right. Exotic pets. And it's very easy, at least in Florida and Texas, um, to get a permit to have a wild animal. Like even a um, like primate is very easy to get. Or like oh. you can have a wolf oh, in your house stupid. as long as it is at least eighty percent wolf. Most, I'm sorry. Oh my god. Not at least. (laughs) So the AZA has a population management center. So we plan for about 500 species for the next 100 years, maintain genetic diversity. So like Abby was mentioning earlier, we don't go out to the wilds to take these animals. Uh, AZA credit facilities include zoos, aquariums, safaris, theme parks, science centers, nature centers, aviaries, butterfly houses. Uh, all of these are nonprofit, for-profit, or public facilities, though so the majority I've encountered are usually uh, nonprofit or 501Cs, if I remember correctly. So the ZAA is another accrediting body, as mentioned earlier. And I did notice what was kind of interesting is that a couple AZA accredited facilities also do share an accreditation with ZAA, which, again, now, no, no, it's not to it's not common to be accredited by multiple uh, bodies, which I think generally the more accreditation you have, depending on the accrediting body, the better. That being said, one of the biggest differences I found between the ZAA and the AZA is they do allow direct or incidental contact with a couple of their class one animals. So class one animals, for example, would be things like elephants or tigers or maybe a certain kind of large ape. Uh, Of course, these incidental or direct contacts usually fall within a couple size or age requirements, et cetera, whereas an AZA very much strive for protected contacts, especially with a lot of our class one animals, because these are potentially very dangerous animals. And we want to make sure that our animals are safe, but also the people who provide them their care as well. Uh, Now, they do have a animal management master plan and population plan. So they do have programs for breeding and genetic diversity, and they do participate in several conservation programs. 
Next up, too, we do have the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries. They accredit bodies that focus more on sanctuaries, so ensuring humane treatment of animals during rescue, rehabilitation, and if the animals cannot be released, uh, focus on their lifetime care. So with limited exceptions, the GFAS does not condone breeding of animals in the facilities, and acquisitions must be legal or ethical, and facilities must be knowledgeable on the animals that they require. Uh, this is according to their website. As far that's, as, like, information on, yeah, yeah that's I was going to say the hard GFAS, one. because I know a lot of places that are accredited by them are questionable. Yeah, I had a hard time so, finding yeah. more in-depth about their accreditation process. If any of our listeners there is a bit more familiar with that, you definitely feel free to send us an email or contact us, but I, I had a hard time finding more information in regards to that. Um, and then, of course, yeah, I, it's it's definitely the leader in like animal sanctuaries, at least in the United States, for accreditation. But it doesn't mean that it's controversial. I feel like that's a, a pretty hot topic. Yeah, is yeah. sanctuaries versus zoos? Yeah, because a lot of people automatically assume that a sanctuary is you know those animals were rescued and they are treated better and. The, the words are kind of backwards, aren't they? Well, yeah. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, like sanctuary so association. It is. Just such a sanctuary implies things. such a... Yeah, like sanctuary applies that everything is like calm and, and good. And zoo has such, now such a negative connotation to it, unfortunately. So it's almost like they should be switched. But now well, with, the, with Tiger King, it's hard to know if, that, if sanctuary is now going to be a negative yeah. term. It's, it's. I mean, the moral of the I mean, story here yeah. is do your research. Yeah, that's, I think that's the, the moral of this whole episode, but that, it just comes down to that. Like, if you are in the United States, uh, one of the best things that you can do if you are visiting, like, a GFAS or a ZAA facility is you can actually look and see if AZA facilities, like, openly support them or collaborate with them. Yes, that's. Yes, that yes. is a great. Emily coming in clutch. (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, we have WAZA, uh, World Association. WAZA! That should be our our new greeting. It should be our new (laughs) WAZA! So WAZA, essentially, uh, they are the unified body for zoological centers and partners with multiple accrediting associations. Uh, Essentially, it's the voice of a global community of high-standard conservation-based zoos and aquariums and a catalyst for their joint conservation action. That last part I listed directly from their website. I think about 400 different centers are accredited by WAZA. Uh, it's actually pretty cool. I like their website. They've got a really cool a bunch of resources and links that you can use, and they talk more in depth about their conservation projects that we work with, which we always like to see. Now, a bit, yeah, you love yes. to see it. Now, a bit that. more on what it takes to become accredited or certified. The process. I know AZA process a little bit more than I do these others, and also AZA does a pretty good job of outline or mapping step-by-step their accreditation process on their website. So if you guys want to take more of an in-depth close look on your free time, definitely encourage our listeners to do that. There's a lot. So it's very transparent. transparent. Which is really great. The fact the fact that it's yeah it's the fact that it's public knowledge speaks volumes, I think. That it's not like, Mm oh what are we secretly doing? It's like, no no no, you guys can look it up if you want to of what we force these institutions to have. Yeah. And I know there a lot you of go. facilities, zoos and aquariums that have done behind the scenes tours. And I feel like when you get a behind the scenes tour, it's really, we have nothing to hide. We're showing you exactly what it is front and back, uh, which just, I think like Abby said, speaks volumes and uh, transparency is always going to be my, my big thing. And on GFAS, the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries, they do have an application process and an inspection. I will say I had a hard time finding the actual process for them. So again, if we have any listeners out there who have more hands-on experience with this, or have maybe worked in a sanctuary that was accredited by them or visited one, you know, definitely give us a shout out, uh, contact us, let us know, because we always like to learn more, of course. 
Then there's USDA, which is kind of described as the basic or first tier level of accreditation. They're kind of the baseline. So if you're housing animals, uh, this is the facility that will go in and say, yes, you are allowed to. Uh, again, there's some controversy over it still. They are also the people that you go to who handle potential legal activities or violations within facilities. And yeah. What's up? What's up? Yeah. <laughs> What's up? Yeah. I say yeah. Abby. Abby, you mentioned Waza earlier and exactly what it does. So if yeah, you want to cover so that real quick. Basically, the World Association of Zoos and Aquariums doesn't quite go and inspect the facilities themselves. They kind of help oversee other governing bodies for um, accreditation. So, for instance, the AZA is a member okay. of the World Association of Zoos and Aquariums. And so any institution that is accredited through the AZA is also accredited through, <laughs> the, through WAZA. Um, and so if you don't live in the United States and you're looking for like the AZA equivalent in your country, you can go to the WAZA website and they have a list of all of their accrediting bodies. And that's kind of cool to look through. So you can see um, kind of what the equivalent of the AZA is in your home country and then make your decision from there. Yeah. So it's kind of a good, it's a good resource. So if I ever travel abroad again um, and I want to go to a zoo, I'm definitely going to check out that website. So the big question here for most people, I'm sure, is do you have to be accredited to be a good zoo? Because, you know, all of the facilities that have um, animals in the United States, we mentioned there's over 2,000 that are technically allowed per USDA to have animals. And then, you know, only less than 10% of those are actually accredited by AZA. Um, So I wanted to jump in on this part because uh, I kind of have a personal uh, anecdote here. Um, my home zoo back in Illinois, where I'm from is the Niabi zoo. Um, it's a zoo I grew up going to, um, in my whole life. And they actually used to be AZA accredited, which I didn't know until recently. Um, but in 2012, they lost their AZA accreditation. Um, and that was because they could not upkeep their elephant enclosure to the point where AZA would continue to accredit them. Now, this does not mean that they are a terrible zoo. Um, And what they actually did was once they found out that they were not going to be reaccredited by AZA, they actually uh, reached out to other zoos and moved their elephants to another AZA accredited facility. So Babe and Sophie, the elephants, who actually did come from uh, Ringling Brothers Circus, they used to be circus elephants. Um, Babe has a big star on her butt. (laughs) She's very cute. Um, (laughs) She's really... Okay. Yeah, they... uh, Yeah, I think I shared one on Facebook uh, like last year or two years ago, but they are the most perfect little elephants. They're little um, Asian elephants, and they moved these elephants to a zoo in Arkansas that is AZA accredited because they could not upkeep their enclosure um, to AZA elephant standards. And we're going to cover AZA elephant standards a ton on the next episode, but um, they actually use their enclosure now for um, different camels, which is kind of cute. So they don't have elephants anymore. They have camels, um, and they have... um, recently been accredited by ZAA. So they're working back up Yay. to becoming AZA accredited again. Um, it is a whole process and it does take a lot of money. And since this is a smaller zoo, that is one of their biggest kind of um, right. barriers to AZA accreditation is that's, just the money. That's like the um, one that it takes for all of these things. I, it's so expensive. Yes. Um, so from my own personal experience, I would say no. the answer to the question, do you have to be accredited to be a good zoo? Yes. Is, I mean, you should probably have some type of accreditation. Maybe not. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you should probably, you know, have your base level there. But I don't think right. not having the AZA accreditation does not spell well, a death some, sentence for a zoo. Some facilities I think can't the, even the, get that because of their, like, they're not open to the visitors, public every every day and stuff so right just it's just not the end all be all right right and uh we talked about this earlier but you know the core goal of the zoo should be conservation and if you go to uh the niabi zoo website um they actually have a little banner right across the top of their page that that says conservation you click through there um it mentions which uh species survival plans they're actually a part of through aza so they are not aza accredited but they work with aza zoos and aquariums um, and then they also mentioned specifically uh, a couple of different programs that they recommend people 
um, donate to or um, that they can visit animals in our zoo that work towards uh, raising money for these animal conservation projects around the world. Um, they specifically mentioned the Snow Leopard Trust, uh, Whale Shark Research, and the African Painted Dogs with the <gasps> Painted Dog Research that. Trust. So we love painted dogs. So um, the point of all of this is to say that just because you don't have that gold standard AZA accreditation does not mean you are a terrible zoo. But what it does mean is that as a member of the general public who wants to visit zoos, zoological facilities, you should do your research. And there's more than one factor that plays into it. I have it, a but personal definitely stake in that too. The zoo I interned at while I was in college did animal caretaking internship and I credit a lot of what I know about animals and what makes me want to be a zookeeper to that zoo uh not AZA accredited they're a very very small zoo and they can't afford the accreditation but they try to hold a lot of the same standards and they actually have had AZA come to the zoo before just to walk through and you know see how they can improve and stuff but for a small nonprofit zoo, it's not always possible. But like Emily said, that doesn't mean they're not doing the right things. It's all about what you know they're they're telling you they're doing, they're showing you. But essentially, if you come across a lot of roadside zoos, Tiger <laughs> King, uh, where cub petting is found, that's usually a pretty big red flag because uh, more often than not, they're just using that as a means to create profit rather than awareness, and it kind of degrades the value of an animal it just turns it into more of a prop than is a living breathing thing so yeah right but a lot of them will still say they're doing it for awareness where is which is when it gets yeah. you know fishy <laughs> tired. we have a lot of feelings it's kind of to conclude yep, take it away what we're talking about it really comes down to a do your research sort of I guess message exactly you want message. to look into any facility that you're interested in visiting and that being said I would say usually our conservation message for an episode like this would be visit your local zoo or aquarium in the given circumstances that can be a little bit difficult um, some zoos and aquariums are opening up uh, soon obviously want to visit them Yay. safely if you do decide to do so but there are a lot of zoos and aquariums right now that are also doing a lot on their social media so even if you can't physically visit them you can check out their social media pages follow them on their different accounts that's a great way to I think support zoos and aquariums is just giving them a like giving them a follow I can't tell you how many zoos I follow on Instagram <laughs> it's a lot um, or All you can even check out it on their websites. A lot of them have donate buttons, especially at the moment. Uh, I know a lot of them also have wish lists. So in my hometown, uh, a place that I visited a lot, I didn't really have a zoo or aquarium that was too close to where I lived on Long Island. But I did have a nature center, Sweetbriar Nature Center, that does a lot of rescue and rehabilitation. And right now they're actually asking for mealworm donations. So for people to order mealworms like online for them and send them to the nature center because they do rescue a lot of birds and they got to feed them. So it just depends on what facility you're looking at. They might have wish lists. They might just ask you to donate um, or you can browse their gift shop which is pretty great as well. I know Abby is still a little salty about the Yeah, fact so that speaking no of that, tailed porcupine stuffed animals, but you could probably find something else. Okay. And since then is you, I love you, but like you said you had a PTP stuffed animal yeah. and it was a North American That's porcupine rough. and I was so sad. So I'm still out there, and I don't think it's the Cincinnati Zoo's fault. I think it's there's no suppliers well, making PTPs. I guess you're going to have to do it. Somebody out there if you run, I'm really bad at sewing. If somebody knows how to sew and wants to send us fan mail of a prehensile tailed porcupine stuffed animal, I will start a collection because I love them and they don't exist. Something else. And I just need them in my life. Yeah. yeah. So I'm still. Um, and I saw out as there well as Zoo Miami is selling face masks now. Um, they actually have very cool designs on them, like flamingos and giraffes and other animals. So I think Aquarium the Pacific is also doing well. that. And virtually visiting, like I said earlier, live cams, explore.org. Oh, my goodness. I visit that website too much. If you just want to. Oh, explore.org. Yeah, if you just want to. Or Zooniverse is fun, too. You can't 
go visit them. Great way to do it as well is to go on those websites and check out some of the live camps. But I guess in conclusion, if you're unsure about zoos or aquariums, that's okay. We've all been there. We're all still there sometimes. Do your research. Ask other people who have gone there what they thought. Look at what accreditations they have. And, you know, feel it out. But for the most part, zoos rock. And I love them. So thank you so much for listening today, everyone. Now go out there and make a difference in the world.